Now we can start recording. Okay. Oh, wow. There we go. Okay. Um, I have a bunch of disclaimers tonight. First of all, I've got a bucket load of material to go through tonight. I don't know if we'll make it, but I feel like I'm under a little pressure to try to get through it all uh, because next week Ben's going to talk and I don't want it to be disconnected, but it's all, it all relates, okay? Uh, and the second disclaimer is uh, I've been doing this marriage stuff for a long, long time and I just know from experience that no matter how I present it, no matter what I say, no matter what Bible verses I use, no, no matter what we talk about, at some point people feel picked on, okay? So let's just acknowledge, you're going to feel picked on. And, and oh, tonight you're really going to feel picked on. Tonight's a big pick on night. Uh, just understand that if, if, if you're starting to feel like, gee whiz, he's picking more on, he's picking on more, more of the, the women than the men um, just know that that might be true in that moment, but there's still four weeks to go in this thing, okay? And I am an equal opportunity picker honor, so we're going to get to everybody. You will all be equally offended by the end of this six weeks, so, and looking for a new church. So um, just, just know that, okay? As, and so as we go through this stuff, just know that everybody's time is eventually going to come. And I'm going to try and be as nice as I can about it, but um, sometimes it's just a little tough, you know, it's, it's hard because... You start to hear things, and you realize that's going on in your marriage, and that's uncomfortable for me, okay? And that, that might be an indication that you need to start dealing with it as well, uh, and I'd be glad to help you with that. So last time we were together, we went through Genesis 2 and then really Genesis 3, the fall, and Genesis 3 demonstrates that we have issues, we have problems, we have challenges in all of our relationships, but especially in marriage, because now you take two sinners and you put them together in life. And so they are in this crucible now, and the crucible gets hot all the time. And so there's going to be conflict, and your flaws are going to be exposed, and it's going to be very challenging, okay? And so tonight what I want to do is I want to talk about one theory and some of the um, uh, ancillary issues with that theory that explains some of our behavior that I think will be really helpful to you guys. That's social science, okay? But then we're going to go into <clears throat> what would be the Apostle Paul's answer, really the Holy Spirit's answer, but the Apostle Paul's answer for how you can handle that, and that's going to be in Ephesians 5, where he compares marriage to the relationship between Jesus and the church. Now, right out of the gate, if you understand that marriage in the Bible is compared to the relationship between Jesus and the church, you have to assume, you must assume that marriage is a very high calling. And I think it's kind of similar, this Ephesians passage, in many ways, to what we've been studying for the last seven years, it seems, in Romans chapter 2, that no one has an excuse. Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is telling husbands and wives, nobody has an excuse to, to behave the way you do if you remember that Christ is the priority and marriage is an example of the relationship between Christ and and the church, and you are presenting Christ in the church to others through your marriage. That's a high calling, and that's a really high responsibility that we're all supposed to live up to. So, um, I want to talk a little bit about attribution theory, and, and hopefully this, if you have questions about this, I, I'm available to talk about this much more in depth, but um, every time I talk about this, it, it's, I, I see people starting to shake their heads, and they're going, oh, you know what, that's exactly right, that's exactly what happens. So, I'm going to do the best I can to explain it in, in as short amount of time as I can, and you, you still get it. Attribution theory uh, is a theory that's been around for 40 or 50 years now. Uh, it, it's never been falsified. The research continues to just confirm the reality of this. Attribution theory uh, describes <clears throat> the fact that in our minds, at every moment that we are interacting with people, at every moment, there is never a neutral moment, there's never a down moment. At every moment as we interact with people, all people, we are attributing motives or causes to the way they behave and the way they communicate to us. We are theorizing in our minds, subconsciously or consciously, both, and very often it's consciously, we are theorizing in our minds why that person is saying what they're saying, 
why they are behaving the way they are behaving. And by the way, any behavior is communicative, okay? So when I say communicating and behavior, it's essentially the same thing. I may not be saying anything, but if I'm behaving in a particular way, even if I'm just standing in a corner like this, I'm communicating, right? If I'm at a party and I'm standing in a corner like this, there's half the people in the room looking at me and they're making attributions and they're going, okay, this is what I'm attributing... He's a jerk, or he's quiet, or he's shy, or he's feeling intimidated, or he's trying to get attention, okay? You're constantly uh, ascribing or attributing motives to people's behavior and communication. Now, here's where it gets a little bit dicey, and I hope interesting, okay? We attribute um, these motives for behavior based on things called external or internal factors. And again, this is all going on in, our, in this amazing computer called our brain. Okay, We attribute behavior to others based on external or internal factors. And we make these judgments this quick. I mean, in a, just in a snap, we make these judgments. What's an external factor? An external factor is a person's situation, circumstance, context, or environment. She is behaving that way because she's in this situation. Okay? There's an external force that is causing her to behave or or communicate the way she is. Okay? An internal factor is anytime we ascribe behavior or communication to a person's character or personal qualities. So, if we view somebody as impatient or petulant, or um, hostile, or angry, or if we uh, view somebody as loving and selfless, we will attribute motives to their communication and behavior based on internal factors. So either external or internal factors. A couple little things that I think are interesting. Once we have made an attribution for somebody's behavior or communication, once you have decided in your mind that your spouse has behaved a certain way or said a certain thing for a particular reason, even if your spouse can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that your attribution is wrong. I mean, there is absolute, if you went to court, there is no way that your spouse would lose this. They have proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that you were wrong in your attribution. 95% of the time, we stick with our original attribution. That's how stubborn people are. That's what we do. Now, I want to just, if you get that, if you understand that, I want you to think about the conflict that you have uh, with your spouse wouldn't that drive some of the conflict, the fact that you're stubbornly holding on to your attributions? It would drive some of your conflict, okay? Now, let's, let's go a little bit deeper on this internal and external factor thing in our way of attributing, okay? It works both ways. It's not, uh, it's not necessarily that all external attributions are good or bad. It just depends on the situation. So, let's say... Um, most of the time, Jackie gets home before I do. Jackie's my wife, if you don't know. She gets home before I do. And so I get home, and she's doing something. She's in the living room watching TV and planning her volleyball practices, or she's in the kitchen doing whatever it is, okay? She's in the house. The garage door goes up. We're dog people. We like dogs, okay? So we have two dogs. We have a, a, a Weimarimer that fluctuates between 95 and 100 pounds. His name is Moose, and he is one. And then we have a little Maltese that at 15 pounds is 7 pounds overweight. So uh, we don't know how that's happened, but at Moose and Lucy, okay, so our dog. We love dog. We're just dog. We've always been dog people, okay? So the dogs hear the, uh, the, the garage door go up, and so they immediately run to the uh, laundry room door, which is where we, we go in. And so... When I walk in and the dogs are there to greet me, I usually spend 30 or 40 seconds there greeting them and cooing at them and talking to them and, and all this stuff. It's wonderful, you know. And, and then I'll walk in and I'll greet, ja- I'll spend less time greeting Jackie, but I will still greet her and give her a nice, you know, greeting. Around. All right, so let's say I get home and I open the, the door and there are the dogs. And rather than greeting the dogs, Jackie's in the kitchen and she can hear this. I, I yell at the dogs to get down and stay away, and I sort of push them out of the way, 
And, and then I walk in, and, and instead of greeting Jackie, I just sort of walk by her, and I walk into the office, and I close the door in the office. Okay. Like it or not, Jackie's going to be making attributions at this point, correct? Wouldn't you? Okay. So, if she's going to make an attribution for my behavior, because I'm communicating, right? Whether I mean to or not, I'm communicating. If she's going to make an attribution based on an external factor, what might she be thinking about my behavior? Any, any guesses? Not, not what did I do, but yes, bad day at work, traffic, a road rage incident on the way home that I was not at fault for. Yeah, flat tire in 105 degree weather, yeah, something like that. Okay, so there's some circumstance. Now, that's, that's actually good for me because if she makes that attribution, here's what she's going to do in her mind. I'm just going to let him have his moment, let him have his 45 minutes in the office. He'll cool off, he'll come out, and he'll be himself again. In other words, her attribution is saying, that's not really Frank, okay? And he'll be okay in a few minutes, and I just need to leave him alone and and let him go. So that's good news for me. What if she decides to make the attribution based on internal factors, though? What's she thinking in her mind? What? Not is he mad at me. Internal factors, uh, character and... Thank you for, listen, don't be nice. You don't have to be nice. Just say it. That's what I get for marrying a jerk. My mom warned me that he was going to be a loser, okay? Those are the things that are going on in her mind. Now, if she makes an internal attribution, uh, is 45 minutes of me staying in the office going to help me later that night? No, I'm in trouble the rest of the night and tomorrow morning and for quite some time, right? You see how that works? Okay? I hope this is helpful to you. It's been very helpful to Jackie and me to know this. I talked about how in social science, social science is not the gospel, but at least it'll explain how and why things happen between people. Okay? Now, let's say instead, different scenario this time, let's say I get home and I walk in and she hears me greeting the dogs, but then I walk in and I have 12 roses. And, under, and here you go. There's some, there's some details that I have to fill in here. First of all, they are not red roses. They are peach roses because she prefers peach to red. Okay, So they're peach roses. And they are not from Flowerama, but they are from AJ's, which means that I w- spent way too much on them. But it also means that they're, they're in a like a $3 vase instead of a no vase, and they have baby's breath and all that other stupid... Anyway, it's beautiful, okay? <laughs> the little fork thing sticking up with the card, okay? And I put that down on the kitchen counter and say, how you doing, honey? Okay, now, and by the way, it's not her birthday and it's not our anniversary. If she makes an external attribution for this behavior, what are the possible explanations that, sh- that are going around in her mind for that? <laughs> what did he do? What? What does he want? What did he do? What does he want? <laughs> okay, you see that? You see how that works? So, suddenly, I was getting a break earlier with the earlier uh, scenario. Now I'm maybe not getting a break. She's questioning my motives. Okay, right? Okay. And she's wondering, man, what, is, what bad news is he going to break to me later tonight? You know? Okay. Now, what if she decides to attribute it to internal factors? What she See, th- th- this is amazing, the silence, because nobody could even imagine that there would be internal factors that would drive me to do this. But what would be the internal, potential internal factors that she could attribute this to? What? You're, the, the, uh, good person. <laughs> yeah. uh, this, he is, uh, well, he is so loving, selfless, compassionate, He thinks of others before he thinks of himself. That's the kind of thing. Okay, so this is this is going to go really well. And if and because I'm a sinful and manipulative person, this is what I really want. Because there's a anyway. So you see how this works, right? You understand how all this works? I'm glad a couple of the guys were tracking with me there. Okay, so now uh, I want to make sure I'm okay. So there's um, a couple of things that happen with attribution theory. 
By the way, is this helpful for explaining how you guys can get into some arguments and discussions that are difficult and, and why things hang on longer than they need to? I, at some point I'm going to say this, but I'm going to say it, say it right now because it's really important. Um, uh, it, I, I, I happen to like all the Venus and, the, the Venus and Mars franchise of books, okay? Uh, John Gray stuff, okay? So the last one that I read, I don't know if it's the last one he's written. I haven't seen another one probably is one, but the last one I read was um, When Venus and Mars Collide, How Fatigue and Stress Affect the Way Husbands and Wives Argue with Each Other. And, and some of you are sitting there going, really, you read that book? Yeah, 265 pages of research on how fatigue and stress affect the way husbands and wives argue with each other. I could not put the book down. It was that good. It was that fascinating, okay? In the book, though, he talks about something that uh, uh, anybody in, in the communication discipline knows that research has shown. Within four minutes of a romantic couple getting into an argument, within four minutes of a romantic couple getting into an argument, you are no longer arguing over the issue that got you into the argument. You are arguing about how each other argues. And that is what you will spend most of your time arguing about. You do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. And at some point, by divine intervention, God's grace, one of you maybe at some point will say, what started this argument? And you'll get back to the business at hand. And you might actually be able to get away from arguing. But there you go. If you just know that in your relation, if you just know that, how much time are you going to be able to save arguing with each other? Because okay, you're never going to be able to agree about how, you, how, how badly each other argues. You're never going to really be able to agree on that. So just argue about the issues. Okay? Now, a couple things. There's this thing called the self-serving bias. I've talked about this in church before. Here's how the self-serving, the self-serving bias comes directly out of attribution theory and its application. The self-serving bias is our tendency when we view our behavior, because we also attribute motives to our own behavior, okay? And our own communication. But the self-serving bias says that every time you and I do something well, we naturally attribute it to internal factors. Well, of course I pass that test. I'm a hard worker. I'm smart. I study hard. I have great study habits, okay? But if somebody else does something well, we automatically attribute it to external factors, (laughs) Well, they gave us a study guide and it was easy and he had access to the master. It's something. You're, you're, you're constantly figuring out how the circumstances allowed somebody else to succeed, but when you succeed, it's your character. Okay? And it goes the other way when, when you do something poorly or when you get caught doing something bad. Uh, it's never your... Uh, y- uh, you never attribute your bad behavior or your bad results to internal factors. It's never because you didn't work hard enough or you're not a good person or you're not honest or whatever it is. It's always, well, anybody in my situation would have done that. And so you blame your circumstances when things go badly, but if somebody else does something bad, what you do is you kind of laugh up your sleeve. You don't say this out loud, but you laugh up your sleeve and you go, well, of course, look at that schmuck. Of course that person's going to do badly. Okay? So that's the self-serving bias. We are always, always, always giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt that we rarely extend to anybody else. Now again, in marriage, if everybody's operating from the basis of the self-serving bias, isn't that going to create conflict? Wouldn't that create conflict? Yes? Okay. All right. Then... Here's something else as part of this research and theory. By the way, you can look all this stuff up on the internet if you want. What's known as the false consensus effect. I've, I've talked about this in church before too, again, but uh, hopefully I'll give it a little bit more uh, skin in here. Here's the false consensus effect. Every person does this. You are not the exception. I am not the exception. We all do this. The false consensus effect says this. Everyone has the tendency to overestimate the degree to which everyone else agrees with them in their opinions, attitudes, beliefs, um, values, likes, and dislikes. Every one of us 
overestimates the degree to which everyone else agrees with us. Our opinions, our values, our beliefs, our likes, our dislikes, whatever it is. Okay? This is why you have uh, five or six different cable news networks now, uh, 24-hour-a-day cable news networks, that start every segment with, every, uh, with um, exclusionary statements that, that, that are like everybody knows or nobody believes, things like that. Well, if that were true, then we wouldn't have MSNBC and Fox. We wouldn't, okay? If everybody thought alike, we wouldn't need all these different networks. Do you see how that works? Um, a couple of examples of, of this. Um, a while ago, uh, three, the, the Three Stooges movie came out, right? Did anybody go see it? Okay, yeah. Um, originally, Metro Go- uh, MGM originally had slated, for, I don't know what happened, but originally they had cast for, as uh, Larry Moe and Curly, not the people that they used, but they, does anybody know? Sean Penn, Jim Carrey, and Benicio Del Toro, Okay. Uh, look them up on the internet, okay? Most of you know those three guys, though, right? Okay, that would have made the movie a little bit different. Anyway, the first time I heard about this was three years ago. There was a guy, when the press release first came out, there's a guy on the radio, and he goes on this five-minute rant saying that nobody's going to go see this movie because everybody hates those three, char- those three uh, actors. And I'm like, that's really weird because um, I, can think, I, ca- I can't name their names, but I can think of about 100 million people who will go see the movie just because they're in this movie. Sean Penn. But could you imagine Benicio Del Toro as a stooge? I mean, that would be awesome. Okay? So that's false consensus effect. All right? Um, here's one that kind of combines uh, all of this stuff. Okay? I love this. Uh, about two years ago, there was a study done about attitudes towards texting and driving. Okay? 87% of people... 87% of people said that no one should text and drive. This is dangerous. 87%. Okay? Now, here's what's just amazing, and you know this is true. Of the 87% of the people who said no one should text and drive, 91% of them said, I can text and drive. It's true. That's just the way we see things. And that's all about this, okay? And we, and we approach marriage this way. We have these attitudes in marriage. And, and just, if you just kind of think about it and spend some time talking about it, you can start to see how you spend a lot of your time in conflict because of misunderstandings and attributions and self-serving bias and false consensus effects. Okay, so I, I think this is really important. Last thing, it's somewhat related, but, but it doesn't have anything, it, I mean, you know, it's kind of along the same genre, but it, it's not a part of this theory. Uh, it's Heidegger's notion of uh, positive and negative ambiguity. <clears throat> okay, so... Would you agree that communication is ambiguous, right? Ambiguous meaning uh, more than one potential meaning, right? Communication is ambiguous, especially nonverbal communication, right? By the way, uh, research has shown over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, it's never, it's never wavered on this, that women are better at encoding and decoding nonverbal communication than men. They're just better at it. Okay? In other words, they know how to use nonverbal communication more effectively, and they know how to understand your nonverbal communication more effectively than you do. Okay? Uh, anyway, um, but nonverbal communication especially is, is, is ambiguous. All of us think we're really good at interpreting nonverbal communication. We're not nearly as good as we think. Okay? Um, but all communication is, is ambiguous. <coughs> Research has shown... Uh, in a few weeks, we'll do social exchange theory, too, and it's, it's very similar to this. Research has shown that when two people meet and the chemistry is right and they like each other and everything's very exciting and you're on your best behavior and, and uh, you're in the, you're in the uh, public relations stage of your, of your relationship where no flaws are being exposed and you're very careful about 
how you allow the person to see you and when you allow the person to see you and all that stuff. Uh, During that time, we naturally practice what Heidegger calls positive ambiguity. So any ambiguous communication that comes our way uh, from this person that we're interested in. By the way, this is not just true of romantic relationships. It's true of friendships. It's true of roommate relationships. It's true of uh, co-worker relationships. It's true of all relationships. But it's intensified again in marriage because of the romantic nature and because of the proximity of the people. But all, uh, all ambiguous communication early on when you're in that smitten stage is almost always you're giving the benefit of the doubt and you're, you're automatically defaulting to the most positive possible interpretation of any ambiguity in the communication. So anything that she does, anything that he does that could be interpreted in a, in a bad way that might cast a doubt on the relationship or, or create a problem, you don't go there. You give them the benefit of the doubt and you interpret it in the most positive way possible. But over time... As we experience deterioration in our relationship, what some people call um, uh, the mutual disenchantment phase, all this feeling stuff starts to wear off and we're not trying as hard, right? Okay? I'm not speaking Greek here, am I? You all understand what we're saying, okay? Um, What happens is during that time, we start to slip over occasionally to the most negative possible interpretation of ambiguous communication. And the more the relationship deteriorates, the more you head over in this direction. Now, if there is a benchmark betrayal in the relationship, a, a tremendous crisis event where trust is lost or it's just total betrayal, immediately you just go, boom, everything is suddenly interpreted negatively you you, you're not giving anybody the benefit of the doubt at that point but if there's no major breach in the relationship it happens um, slowly it's just part of the deterioration of the relationship but eventually you will hit what Malcolm Gladwell has called the tipping point you can apply that to a number of different things you'll hit the tipping point where Suddenly, now you're just going to start interpreting everything negative. And then the, the deterioration of the relationship gets accelerated. Okay? Uh, again, uh, <clears throat> session five or six, we'll talk about the six stages of relationships and how that works and what we can do during stage four, which is the stage of deterioration, which we all experience, and we need to be prepared for it, and we need to know how to work through that. Okay? But that's what we do. We, we, we start, uh, as things aren't going quite as well, as we're not quite as excited, as the chemistry isn't flowing quite as much, we tend to start moving towards that negative uh, interpretation of ambiguous communication and behavior. Do you follow that? Does that make sense? Well, what does that do to your relationship? It's a rhetorical question, you know, okay? So, now, grab your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. This would be <clears throat> the, God's answer the, by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul to all of this trouble. Let me just read it, and then we're going to just start working at unpacking it. And, and I'm going to go for um, 35 more minutes, and wherever we are, we're going to stop at that point. I'm going to get as far as I can, but I'm not going to force you to stay here. Uh, longer. We'll just pick it up if I don't get through it all. Okay? And some of you are like, just stop talking and start reading and you'll get through it. Okay, here we go. First, I've got to find Ephesians. It's in the New Testament, right? It's here somewhere. Okay, now, most of you, your Bibles will have a break between verse 21 and 22. <coughs> and 22 starts a new paragraph. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Okay? I'm going to start in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And you're going, why are you starting there? That's above the break. It's in a different paragraph or whatever. Okay, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I'll explain in a few minutes. Wives, submit to your... Now, right away we're into controversy, right? There's that S word. It's worse than the other S word for some of you. Okay, right? So the first question a lot of people say is, okay, what does the word mean in Greek? Okay. So, Mark Driscoll says you can always tell, tell a rebellious evangelical when they ask, what does the word mean in Greek, okay? Let me tell you something. The word is worse in Greek. It's better in English. 
In Greek, it's the word hupotasso, which is a combination of two words that mean line up under. It's a military term. Okay, so wives submit to your husbands. Or you could say it this way. Wives, line up under your husbands. <laughs> Secretly, the guys are going... Okay, right now. Anyway, so wives, submit to your own husbands. Well, that's good. It's only the one. All right. As to the Lord. Your husband isn't the Lord, but as to the Lord. We'll explain all of that. Okay. Uh, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ as the, is the head of the church, his body, and is himself uh, its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything. Everything. That sounds like a lot of stuff. Okay, everything. What, is, what does everything mean in Greek? Yeah, everything. Okay, so wives submit to, uh, in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with uh, the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a really important reference. First of all, that's referencing um, uh, Genesis 2.24, right? So part of the whole creation story prior to the fall. But it's also important because it goes back up to um, uh, verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own body, he who loves his wife loves himself. Okay? You're one. God sees you as one. Left the, husband, the, the mother and father, you become one flesh. If you don't love your wife, you don't love yourself. That's what God is saying to you. Okay? Just want to make sure I make that point there. Uh, Therefore, the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. Here you go. This, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now that's interesting. Paul is here saying, I'm revealing the mystery to you now. There's a lot of mystery with God, right? Well, this one is being revealed now. Marriage is supposed to be a picture of Christ and the church. Okay? And then he says in 33, wraps it up, summarizes again. However, let each one of you love his, uh, love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Okay? Now, there is a ton going on in this passage. So let's start kind of unpacking it. Um, first, let me just say that there's been debate for hundreds and hundreds of years about the Greek in this text. Okay, So you look at verse 21. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ or submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The Greek is actually a participle, so it should read submitting to one another. But the verb is there. It's a participle, but it's a verb. And the verb in the Greek, in the Greek text, is in verse 21. Here's what's interesting. It's not in verse 22. Now, that doesn't mean that, it, that, that Paul is not saying that wives shouldn't submit to their husbands. What it does mean, though, is that verse 22 is dependent upon verse 21 in the Greek construction. It's called an elliptical construction. You use the verb here, and then you continue to talk as though the verb were were inserted, but you don't actually say the the verb. It's a rhetorical device. It's very common. Okay? So, people who say verse 21 has nothing to do with verse 22, I would argue they're wrong. It has to. Because literally, verse 22 says this, Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. You have to find the verb somewhere. Where's the verb? It's in verse 21 where we're saying, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But I also agree with those who argue that verse 21 belongs with verses 1 through 20, where Paul reviews how we're supposed to treat each other uh, in the church, and that it's his, it's his uh, summary statement for how we're supposed to treat each other in the church, that we're supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So here's what verse 21 is, in my opinion, my humble opinion, okay? 
But I have some scholarly backup for this. Verse 21 is what I would call a swing verse. It goes both ways. It goes with, uh, the, it's the summary of verses 1 through 20, but it also begins his discussion of how marriage is supposed to work. Okay? A lot of people get nervous about this because they think that it somehow mitigates or lessens the wife's responsibility in the marriage to submit to her husband if there's mutual submission going on. Do you see why people would say that? Okay, but I would argue that there is mutual submission that goes on in the marriage, but because men and women are different, and Paul knew this, because the Holy Spirit was writing this through him, and who knows us better than the Holy Spirit? Nobody. Men and women are different. Submission looks different for men and women. Our needs as men and women are different. Therefore, we are going to fulfill different roles for each other. That's what it means to complement each other. That's why we believe in complementarian theology at, at um, what church are we at? Redemption Church, okay? That's why we believe in complementarian theology. Okay? And we're going to get to that discussion later, but I just, I just, wanted to, I, I just want to show you that. Uh, husbands really need to feel respected. Isn't it interesting that Paul uses the word respect in verse 23? They do. Men need to feel respected and affirmed. It's one of our needs. And, and I know there's a tendency on, on some of your parts to go, well, they should just grow up and deal with it. That's not helpful. <laughs> it's just not helpful, okay? What's wrong with giving respect and affirmation to your husband? You shouldn't have married him if you can't respect him and affirm him. You might be the problem, Okay? Three billion fish in the sea, and this is the tuna you picked. Well, you're stuck with him now, okay? All right? Okay? But, but, but wives, they need affection. Emotional intimacy. Guys are like, I like that word intimacy, but that word emotional that modifies intimacy, that's a problem. It's got to be physical. No, they want uh, affection and emotional intimacy. Husbands need to to love their wives, agape their their, their wives. Compassionately, selflessly, sacrificially love their wives. It's how we submit to our wives. That's what I would argue. Okay? Wives don't, isn't that what you want? I've always been always been confused by the woman that says the woman's job is much harder submitting to a guy. Well, the text says that the guy is supposed to give his life up, die for his wife. That sounds hard. I mean, we, we at least should get an attaboy for that. <laughs> then there are people who will say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is, a culturally, uh, this is bound by cultural context. In that culture, in that culture, it was normal for a wife to submit to a husband. Let me tell you something. There's never been a culture ever in the history of humanity because humans are sinners where women willingly just submitted to men. There just never has been, first of all. And second of all, if verse 22 is culturally uh, bound, okay, then why isn't verse 25? I've never heard a woman say, husbands don't need to love their wives. That's a cultural thing. That's what they did in the first century. Never have I heard that. Never heard that argument. Never, 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 never heard that argument out of a person who's saying, I don't have to submit. That was a cultural thing from the first century, okay? So those are just some preliminary remarks. Now, let me start to go through some of this, all right? There's a lot going on in this passage besides all of that. It's, it's so much deeper than just what a husband and wife are supposed to do with each other. Number one, as I said, this is comparing marriage to Jesus in the church. This is talking about the roles of husbands and wives. It is not talking about the value of men men and women. It's not talking about the status of men and women uh, before Christ and before God. It's not talking about any of that stuff. We have equal status and equal value before God. It is talking about our roles. Our roles are going to be different. Our roles are going to be different. If Jackie and I were both good at the same thing and tried to do the same thing, we would have a really messed up marriage that probably didn't get very much done. Okay? Uh, It has to do with love. Look at how often the word love is used in there and how often the word love is attributed to Jesus, actually. 
Okay? It has to do with what it means to submit. By the way, let me just say this. The problem with love today is that for most people, it means I get to do whatever I want. That's not the definition of love. It's certainly not the biblical definition of love. Okay? Uh, the, the cultural definition of love is completely selfish. Um, he, here's an example of this. I once had a friend. I, I finally just couldn't be, a fr- I couldn't be friends with him anymore. Okay, Because this guy would go out and just with reckless disregard, sin, 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 against his family, against his friends, just, I, I mean, with ruthless and reckless disregard. Awful, horrible, offensive, hurtful sin against everybody that's close in his life. And the minute anybody, his wife, his friends, the minute anybody called him on it, his response was, you're the one who's not acting like a Christian because you're not forgiving me. That was what he hid behind. And he said, you're not loving me because you're not forgiving me. We never got to talk about how he wasn't loving anybody else because he's sinning against everybody else. But that's his definition of love. I get to do whatever I want. Okay? Love in the Bible is a completely selfless word. It's selfless, completely. We struggle with that. We really do. Okay? So, uh, it, it also talks about how we're all going to uh, submit to one another, which means that we have uh, equal, we are equal in status, we are equal in value, but we have different roles. By the way, this is just like the Trinity. Think about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal, right? Wouldn't you say they're equal? Do you agree? Okay. Wouldn't you also agree that they have different roles? Completely different roles, right? Only one of them died on the cross. Only one of them is with us now encouraging us, right? Okay, so we, we need to remember that. And here's what's really funny. In, in Scripture, especially in the Gospels and, and in the New Testament letters, but in Scripture, whenever you read about the interaction between any of the members of the Trinity, you will find that they are all yielding to each other. There's never a time where, where there's one kind of asserting, the Father's asserting Himself over and against the Son and the Holy Spirit. No, what the Father does is He, is he lifts up the Son and says, this is who I am well pleased with. The Son, Jesus, says, it's going to be better when I leave here because I'm sending you the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. You see that? They're shy towards one another. They yield towards one another. And then you go, there are some people who say, well, uh, I don't understand how you can get submission as a Christ-like behavior out of any text in the Bible, including here, even if you have the word submit here, okay? Well, the reason is because Jesus submitted. Do you understand that Jesus practiced submission? Okay? So, in Philippians chapter 2, that classic passage, the, the hymn that Paul writes in there, essentially what Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 2 is Jesus is up there with In the Trinity, they're reigning and ruling in heaven. And the Father looks at him essentially and says, here's what you need to do. You get to go down to earth, become like a man, get falsely accused, and then executed by those sinners. You get to go and do that. And Jesus said, okay. Because he did not think that his glory was worth holding on to and not leaving. That's what Paul tells us. Jesus submitted to that whole process because he wanted to save us. Okay? There's another time where Jesus, clearly Jesus submitted. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that? Jesus is in the garden the night before he's betrayed and, and put on the cross, and he's praying to God. And what does he say? Please, Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to to do this. The way Schrader says it. I love the way Schrader says it. Jesus prayed, if there's a plan B, Father, let's wheel it out and look at it right now because I'd be interested in talking about that. Okay? But in the very same breath, in the very same breath, He says, but not my will, Your will. He submits to the Father in His will. Okay? 
So this idea that it's really hard to submit, we have to remember, I think it was really hard even for God to submit to God when it came to um, uh, the cross. Okay? Now, all of us, going back to a little bit of social science, but all of us have scripts for everything that happens in our lives. Scripts in our minds for everything that happens. We have a script for everything. Even things we've never done before, you and I have a script. Here's how we think it's going to play out. Has anybody ever gone on vacation to Europe? Let's say, okay. Before you went, before you'd ever been to Europe, you were planning your vacation, and in your mind, you had a script of how that was going to play out and what it was going to look like, right? Now, when you got there, and the script was different than what you had in your mind, you had to deal with that. Sometimes that causes conflict, it causes frustration, it can cause discouragement, it can cause anger, it can cause um, fear, or sometimes uh, it, can, it can cause excitement, and you're excited about that. But we have a script for everything. I, I admit, I, I, I drink a lot of Circle K coffee, I'm sorry. I prefer Lucy's and Lux and all those places, but it's just impossible to get in there and park and all that stuff, and besides, it's a lot of money, but... Um, so I, I go to Circle K. I, I, literally, I know there's 10 or 15 Circle Ks in the city that I, that I tend to go to, okay? I, I don't have stock in Circle K, by the way, but I, I have 10 or 15 of them, and I've got a script for every one of them, all the way down to which uh, ingress am I going to use into the parking lot, which parking space do I hope is available, okay? To the fact that I, I, I've got to have I'm, apparently I'm not a real coffee drinker. I have to ha- there has to be vanilla-flavored creamer in the dispenser or I'm mad. Okay? If I have to open those little tubs, that's aggravating. If they're out of the Colombian brew, that's a problem. If there's a long line of people buying lottery tickets, that's a violation of my script. There are all kinds of potential violations to my script. Have you ever seen an extremely mature old person uh, walking into a doctor's office. I guarantee you the doctor's office is going to violate their script. And it usually takes about five seconds because that person has in their mind the script of, I've filled out all the paperwork. And the minute you walk into a doctor's office now, no matter how often you've been there, what's the first thing they do to you? We have this paperwork that you need to fill out. And they give you the clipboard and the pen that doesn't work, right? Okay. This is where a lot of conflict happens in, in doctor's offices, right? Okay. There's a reason why those ladies sit behind the, the, the bulletproof glass. Because the people are throwing the clipboards at. But it's a violation of the script. We have a script for everything. From doing laundry to going on vacation, we have a script for everything. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 is God's script for marriage, and it doesn't look like anything that we thought it was going to be. That's our problem. But if we follow this script, I guarantee you, it's going to be really good. It will. It will. It's better than the alternative. It really is when we start to assert who we think we are. Um, uh, one other thing I want to mention, Paul quotes from Genesis in this, in this passage, uh, I think it's verse 32, where he quotes Genesis 2.24, which reminds us of a point I made last week that I want to make again. You and I were all created. We are not made, and there is a difference. We were created, and we were created by God a certain way. We're not made... There are n- uh, nurture and environmental things that, that turn us into nuances of who we are, but essentially we are created by God and we have a destiny of who we're going to be from the womb. Okay? Neurologically, biologically, physiologically. Okay? We don't make ourselves when it comes to gender. We try. A lot of us have tried. I have a sister who's done that. Okay? And when we do, when we try to mess around with the created order, we're disordering the created order, and only bad stuff comes from, comes from that. That's uh, Paul's basic argument in Romans 1, 18-32, is that we're messing around with the created order. Okay? We are not a construct. God doesn't intend for us to be a construct other than what the Holy Spirit constructs in our life. 
Okay? We are not a construct, but rather we are image bearers of God. We are the Imago Dei. Just think about this. God has created us in His image, and it's culturally fashionable for us to try to change that. That might be a problem. That might be a problem. Okay? Christians also, Christians and non-Christians, do not just have different conclusions about things like marriage, gender, and sex. We do, right? Christians and non-Christians, different conclusions. It's not just that we have different conclusions, though. The conclusions are merely symptoms of the fact that we have different minds. If you are a Christian, your mind has been renewed by the Holy Spirit, been regenerated. You are going to think differently about things. You're going to interpret things differently. You're going to see things differently. You're going to have, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.5, the same mind that Christ had. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And if you have the same mind that Christ had, you're going to come to different conclusions about things than the world. And the world has a set of beliefs about marriage. And let me tell you something. They're not good. And the Bible has a set of beliefs and teachings about marriage. And it's the best, even though it's countercultural and counterintuitive. But I'm telling you, that's the script you want. The script you want is the script that that the Bible has. And by the way, Ephesians 5 is not the only place that speaks to this. There's lots of places uh, where the Bible speaks to marriage. More than you'll ever know. Okay? We're just looking at Ephesians 5 tonight. We'll have some other things as well. All right. Now, just by way of, of, of setting the context, I want you to look in this passage at all the things that Jesus does for the church, us, in this passage. Okay? First of all, Jesus is the head of the church. The, the, the word head translates um, the Greek word kephala, which literally means wellspring or fount of leadership, strength, protection, and tenderness. When Scripture says that the man is the head of the relationship, it, it is not a picture of him asserting dominance over the woman. It is not a picture of me, Tarzan, you, Jane. That's not what it is. Some of you who are under 30 are like, who in the heck is Tarzan and what book of the Bible is he in? Okay, So that's not what it is. Okay, But as the head, you are the wellspring of protection, spiritual leadership, good things for the wife. Okay? So Jesus does that for the church. He's the wellspring of leadership, strength, protection, and tenderness. Jesus is also the Savior. We need a Savior. In case you were wondering about that, we need a Savior. We need a Savior from ourselves and from God. Tom says it this way, and he's right. The theology is correct. We are saved by God, from God, for God. Okay. So again, even in marriage, which we think is for us, okay, and, you know, there's really good parts of marriage. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to tell you. I could tell you, but I'm not going to. Good parts of marriage, okay. But, but it's not really for us. It's for the pursuit of holiness. It's for God. Okay? And all of life, we're saved by God, from God, for God. Okay? So we need a Savior. Jesus also loves the church. By the way, he loves the church even though the church is really awful. Really? The church is yeah, we're the church is the church is dysfunctional, it's disorganized, it's led by a bunch of sinners. It's a mess. It's led by a bunch of sinners and we're leading a bunch of sinners, okay? The church is really a mess. The reason the church has lasted for 2 thousand years is not because we're smart organized and wonderful it's because god is god that's why it's the only reason this could happen psalm 127 if the lord doesn't build the house the workers labor in vain okay churches are built by by jesus not by us okay so he loves the church in spite of how unlovable we are guys there are occasions, I know it's rare, but there are occasions when your wife is not that lovable. She's just like the church. 
And if you're going to be Jesus to her, you have to love her when she's unlovable. How, by the way, here you go. How easy would it be, wives, for you to submit to your husband when he's perfect? Okay, that's pretty easy, right? Does that, is, that what the, is that what the text says, though? Wives, submit to your husbands when he's right, when he's making good decisions, and when he's not being a jerk. Okay, is that what it says? No. Anybody can do that. Does it say, husbands, love your wives only when she's lovable? No, anyone can do that. The point is, is we're supposed to submit and love when it's hard. And we can't do that under our own power. We do that under the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Uh, Jesus also died for the church and he died for us. Jesus sanctifies us. These are all the things that Jesus does for the church. Now you're going, really? This is all going to go on in marriage? Yes. Is this expanding our understanding of marriage? Is it frightening anybody? Those of you who aren't married yet, are you like, this is it, I'm done? Is that, <laughs> I'm getting out while I still can? Is that kind of the, okay. Jesus presents the church spotless to the Father. Jesus makes us holy. Jesus makes us without flaw. And Jesus nurtures and cherishes us. These are all the things that Jesus does for the church. And Paul is comparing marriage to the relationship between Jesus and the church. Okay, so, with that in mind, holy cow, I got nine minutes. I'm going to stop there. And here's why. If I get into this, boy, oh boy, it won't be good to cut it off short. (laughs) Okay, here you go. Uh, When we come back in two weeks, not next week, Ben's going to come in and talk next week, okay? But when we come back in two weeks, this is where we're going to pick it up. Okay, what does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband? What does that mean? Because some of you are like, okay, I'm hearing all of this stuff. I'm getting it. This is great theology. What does it mean to me as a wife? Okay, I've got like nine points. What does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband? And we're going to get very tangible, very concrete, very applicable uh, when we talk about that. Then we're going to go to what does it mean for a husband to love his wife? We're going to get really tangible, really concrete, really applicable. We're going to describe some behaviors. Okay? Alright? And then, um, you know what? I have time. I could do this tonight. And then I was going to say, I want to further explain the ideas of complementarian and egalitarian theology. Remember last week I said I'd do that this week? I think I can do it in the last eight minutes. Okay? So let's do that. Now... In, in Ephesians 5, 21, 22 through 33, uh, Paul presents uh, an, uh, a complementarian view of marriage, that we complement each other. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the way we're created, divine created order, we, we complement each other. So complementarian theology essentially goes like this. It's based on Genesis uh, 2 and then a host of other biblical passages, but it starts in Genesis 2, that men and women are different. We're created different, okay? When, when God said, I'm going to make an Ezer Konegdo for the man, uh, a, a helper suitable, a reciprocating partner, he didn't say, I'm going to make a mirror image of the man. He said, he's, I'm going to make somebody that's going to complement him. That's what he's saying. He fills her gaps, she fills his gaps, okay? So the complementarian view or theological view is that um, men and women are equal in status before God, equal in value before God, but we have different roles. We have different roles to fill. And in the home and in the church, that's where we get the tension because in the home, men and women are different. The husband is the head, the kephala, which everybody tends to have a problem with until they really understand what that means. And, and, the, the, husband is, and, and the wives are supposed to submit to him and the husband is supposed to love the wife. In the church, it means that... <clears throat> Um, we're going to have male pastors and elders, but we can have deacons and other leaders that are women. But uh, in terms of pastors and elders, we're going to have males. That's what the complementarian deal is about. Those who believe that the Bible presents an egalitarian theology, and I was in a, in a denomination for 12 years that, that was egalitarian, even though I was pretty complementarian in my own theology. Uh, that's a whole other backstory, but... Um, I understand the egalitarian position very well. The egalitarian position says this. 
we are not only equal in status and value before God, but we're also equal in role. Men and women can do the same things equally as well, and they should, they should have uh, equal opportunity for any of these roles. In marriage, in the household, and at the church, no matter what. We're equal. Okay? And there's biblical verses that you can point to to start to build a, 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 a theological case for that. I think the case is much stronger for complementarianism, but I have to tell you that the egalitarian position is not just whack. There are p- passages that you can point to that you can, you can make the argument for. Okay? So in all fairness, I'm, I'm saying that. All right? But here is what I have discovered in application of complementarian and egalitarian theology. Complementarian theology tends, when it's practiced well tends to uh, promote cooperation. Egalitarian theology, whether it's practiced well or practiced poorly, almost always promotes and encourages competition. I want you to think about that. Okay? And by the way, I've run this by the elders of this church. I said, if I'm wrong about this, you better tell me because I'm going to teach this. And I did this a couple of weeks ago. And I've run it by some other people as well. People a lot smarter than I am. And every person has come back and said, yeah, that's about the way it works. Uh, The egalitarian contexts that I've been in are highly competitive. They're just like the marketplace men and women throwing elbows at each other because everybody believes that they can do exactly the same thing better than anybody else. And it's really a problem, especially in a church context, which isn't supposed to always operate like the marketplace. Okay? And it becomes a problem in marriages too. If there's just nothing... If, let me tell you something. Um, no relationship can survive constant competition. And if, and if a household is nothing but competition between the two people there at some point something's going to give and it's not going to be good okay complementarianism promotes cooperation generally speaking egalitarianism promotes uh competition okay um here's a couple of examples for you okay i have two hands a left hand and a right hand okay they're not the same they complement each other There are some things I can do with my right hand much better than I can do with my left hand. There are some things that the left hand does much better than my right hand. And they work in concert with each other. You will never see my two hands fighting with each other for supremacy. You just won't see that. They cooperate with each other. They work with each other. Let me use an athletic analogy. Maybe some of the guys will get on board with that, okay? So let's say that uh, all baseball players' hands adopted an egalitarian approach to life. All baseball players, their hands adopted an egalitarian approach to life. Okay? I I am right-handed, therefore I I wear my glove on my left hand when I play baseball. And my left hand does things with the glove that my right hand can't even come close to. Have you ever... Those of you who are right-handed, have you ever tried to put, on a, put a glove on the right hand? I mean, and I mean a right-handed glove. Have you ever tried to put a, right-handed, a, a left-handed player's glove on your right hand and, and go out there and try? You can't, you can't, right? It's impossible. You can't catch a fly ball. You don't, you know, okay? This hand can do something that this hand can't do, okay? But if your hands, in the, if a baseball player's hands have an egalitarian view of what they're supposed to be doing, my right hand is going to be disappointed that it doesn't have a glove like my left hand. The left hand is so special that it has a glove. I want a glove too. And so, all right, we're egalitarian, so we're going to put gloves on both hands. If I'm a baseball player, that's the team I want to play, the team that has gloves on both hands. Do you see that? Now, I know you're going, well, that's real. But that's the way it works. When you have marriages with the husband and wife constantly fighting each other for leadership and power and influence and assertion. That's what happens. You're unproductive and you are a lousy view of Christ in the church to the rest of the world. Lousy. Your testimony is lousy. Non-Christians look at that and go, well, if that's what Christian marriage looks like, I've already got that. What do I need the church for? What do I need Jesus for? You see that? 
So I'm, I'm pretty embedded in, in this idea of complementarian theology, and they wouldn't have hired me if I wasn't too. But anyway, and here's what's really funny about this. Now, I think this is good, and then we'll close with this. This is helpful, okay? Um, in communication, in the communication discipline, research has been done for years on the idea of what they call... Now, this is funny. If they knew, if, if uh, secular social scientists knew the words that they were using, they would change the words. But here are the words that they have for uh, romantic relationships. They say that romantic relationships generally fall into two broad categories. There are complementary romantic relationships. Funny they use that word. And then there's romantic relationships that they call symmetrical. Okay? Uh, The symmetrical romantic relationships are people who are kind of mirror images of each other. They have the same strengths, they have the same weaknesses, uh, and they have the same uh, communication styles, okay? Complementary uh, 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 romantic couples in the social science area are couples that uh, are kind of like, you know, this is an oversimplification, but it's kind of that opposites attracts kind of a thing. You know, where, where Jackie's really strong, I'm really weak. Where I'm really strong, Jackie's weak. And we fill each other's gaps and we have different communicate. Let me tell you something. Jackie and I have very different communication styles. We have very different temperaments. And we have the tendency, one has the tendency to pick up the other when we need to be picked up. And it just works out that way. We have a complementary relationship from a social scientist view. Here's what's interesting about all the research. Symmetrical romantic relationships rarely last. And I would equate those with the egalitarian approach. We're all equals. We're exactly the same. We're going for the same thing. Okay? Those, the social scientists predict from the very beginning they're incompatible. It's not going to work because they're symmetrical. Let's get complements together. Those relationships will work. So I think that's interesting. I think that's a, that is a, an affirmation uh, a social scientist affirmation of the nuances of this theology. Okay? All right, that's all I got for tonight. So when we come back, we're going to, uh, when, when I'm back up here, I'm going to read through Ephesians 5, 22 through 20, uh, 33 again, and we'll go right to what does it mean for a wife to submit? What does it mean for a husband to love? We're, we're going to do that, and then we're going to get into some, uh, some other social science uh, stuff that I have for you. We're going to do conflict resolution one night. How many of you would like to talk about conflict styles and strategies and conflict resolution stuff? Okay, it's very helpful. We're going to talk about forgiveness, which is really important. A lot of time spending on on forgiveness. We're going to talk about something called social uh, exchange theory. We're going to talk about the differing emotional needs for men and women. And we're going to talk about the way men and women communicate differently and why we need to be aware of that. These are just some of the things that we're going to spend uh, the next four weeks um, talking about, okay? Let me pray and then you can be on your way or you can hang out with me and ask me questions if you want. Uh, God, thanks a lot for, uh, again, your word and its truth. And although it's very difficult sometimes to reconcile your word with our desires, uh, just remind us that, that when we lean into our appetites rather than your discernment, we are asking for trouble. So help us to, help us to have clarity on that. Uh, give us the strength to submit to your word and give us the strength to submit first and foremost to you and your son Jesus Christ and to seek holiness in all of our relationships. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks for being here. We'll see you uh, Sunday.